But, well, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is why I need a book to go through, because just, I'll just go off in tangents. So I need a, I need a text to plant myself in. Um, and so uh, we've been going through, and this is, of course, Paul's letter back to the Corinthians. This is the second letter. I know it says 1 Corinthians. I'm not crazy. In history, it, it, he keeps referring back to the other letter he sent. So what commentators have concluded is that there was the first letter, then this one, then a third one, and then the last one, which is 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. So, so amidst all of that, this is a letter that Paul has written. Half of it is in, in response to a Q&A that, that, that is going on with them and their pastor, their planning pastor who's now moved on. They're asking questions. He's answering. Part of it also is that he's heard re- reports of what is going on in that church, and he is highly concerned and worried at the, at the lack of doctrinal health, practical, functional health of the church. That's where we are tonight, that he is seeing a whole bunch of issues reported and asked by them about their practice of the spiritual gifts, what we've called the charismata, which is just the Greek word for a gracious gift freely given, the charismata. And, and Paul uses this word to refer to a lot about the Christian life, like eternal life, faith. Jesus Christ himself is called a charismata in some sense that he's freely given to us. However, there are those particular gifts which are enablings of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we, after having been forgiven by Jesus, by trusting in his once for all atonement on the cross, where he died for our sins, rose for our justification, went up back into heaven and now sits at God's right hand on the throne to rule all nations, all of history, until its culmination comes in confessing his lordship. That's where he is, and we on earth are gifted his spirit and enabled by that spirit to get on the mission of preaching Jesus Christ, establishing churches and spreading the kingdom. So that in the church, not just the, the service of the church, as in the, the worship gathering, but in the whole life of all of the Christians that belong to local assemblies, God gifts all sorts of ways. And so uh, chapter 12 showed us many of these. There's the gift of knowledge and wisdom and prophecy and tongues and distinguishing of spiritual realities and uh, the gift of generosity that there, there is, the gift of service, the gifts of... of, um, uh, of Uh, of uh, prophecy, where where God gives messages to speak to people. We've seen all of this happening, gifts of healing, helping, administration, and all of this, but it's all in the context of building up the church. 1 Corinthians 13 finds itself sandwiched in this discussion about spiritual gifts, because as we saw last week, if love is our highest motivator, if love leads us then the spiritual gifts and all that we do in the Christian life will be put in their right place. We defined love last week as fulfilling the law of God in Christ-like sacrificial service to the church for the fulfillment of the Great Commission and we can tack on to the glory of Christ. That it's embodying the law of God in a Christ-like way to sacrifice of ourselves, to fulfill, uh, to build up the local church so that the Great Commission can be completed. That's what love is. And he says here in verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you 
may prophesy. We'll come back to that verse at the very end. But I'm now going to read the whole of the, uh, the, the section that we will be uh, going through tonight. It's 25 verses. I pray and trust you'll stay attentive. I read, have your own Bible open in front of you. Read it in your own um, uh, 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 translation, whatever, whatever you have, and uh, we'll go through it together. This is what the ESV reads. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless somebody interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a barbarian to the speaker, and the speaker will be a, a barbarian to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes, together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to an account by all. The secret of his heart is disclosed and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. May God bless the preaching of his own inerrant and precious word to us this evening. Well, where we find ourselves is a real discussion by contrast 
from the Apostle Paul on the gift of tongues, a good, godly, spiritually given gift, and the gift of prophecy, a good, godly, spiritually given gift. He's going to see, as you've seen already, he's going to be saying that he far prefers the speaking of prophecy in a particular context. And the context is the local church assembly. So far, we've done a lot of uh, talk of the gifts on the Great Commission and in the general Christian life. But tonight and next week's discussion, next week will be on orderly worship and the practicals of gifts in this, the, the gathering. These uh, two nights are talking specifically about the public assembly of worship that we find ourselves in right now. That's what Paul changes the topic to start talking about. <clears throat> so we're going to see a distinction uh, between tongues and prophecy. Then we're going to see why Paul prefers prophecy. And then we're going to see why uh, or how prophecy is to be desired. So first of all, a contrast between tongues and prophecy. This is going to be, uh, basically I've got eight or so points for each of the two gifts. And we're going to see them contrasted as what, uh, according to what Paul says in this passage. The gift of tongues, as we've defined in prior weeks, is a gift that is, look at verse 2, it is a gift that speaks not to mankind, but to God. It is primarily in Paul's mind, not a gift that speaks to other men and other women, but a gift that speaks to God. And this sort of pushes back against what I used to believe and what many still currently believe, which is that the gift of tongues is and is only and a spiritual ability to, to speak foreign human languages that you have not previously known. Because we see that happen in the book of Acts chapter 2 in this powerful and amazing display at Pentecost. And, and that's really the, the only time we've seen uh, 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 in the book of Acts what that gift looked like specifically. The content and the nature of the word spoken. And so it's assumed that tongues, therefore, the normative, basic, fundamental assumption of tongues is that it's always a foreign human language you've not learned that the Spirit's enabling you to say. But that is only one pocket of it because Paul says, as sort of what sounds like a blanket statement here, this gift is not a man-to-man gift. This is not a preacher-to-people, person-to-public gathering gift. It is a man-to-God gift. I'm using man generically, of course. A human-to-God gift. That's what verse 2 says. It's not to man. Secondly, it's uninterpreted. So he says in verse 2, at the, the next half there, he says, One speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. No one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. So this means that what tongues is, is a spiritually given ability to speak not to man, but to God, in a way that is uh, uninterpreted, mysterious, what is being said is not known or understood to anybody, even the speaker, as Paul says later on, uh, in the, uh, later on in this passage. Then he also says, of course, it's a spiritually enabled gift. It is, it is as if the, the spirit within a Christian is communicating directly to God, bypassing the, the normal language, rational cortex of the brain, so that it's spirit to God, direct communication. Again, we see this in verse 2 where he says that the, he utters mysteries in the spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. We also see down in verse 4 that this gift is primarily for the edification of self. This word is going to come up over and over again in this passage. Edification means building up. A building is otherwise called an edifice. To edify is to build 
Whenever you see the words building up, that's the, the uh, concept of edification. So tongues is meant for individual self-edification and growth, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to build yourself up. We're told in Jude to, because some people read this and think Paul's being sarcastic. Uh, he, he's just saying tongues is no good because it only builds yourself up. That's not the tone. It's not contextually the tone. It's also not a bad thing to build yourself up. I'm, when you're speaking in tongue, when you're praying rather, and you're not speaking in tongues, you're edifying yourself. It's really, uh, in that sense, it's, it's clearly, it's not a bad thing. And we're told in Jude to build yourself up in the most holy faith. So anyway, it's uh, for self-edification. Look at verse 5. He says, I want you to all speak in tongues. So this is a gift that is not promised to everybody, but that is available to everybody. We're all commanded to pursue it and pray for it. We're not promised that every single one of us will get it. It says uh, at the end of verse tw uh, chapter 12, do all speak in tongues only as much as all are apostles, which is not the case. <coughs> in verse 14, we see him say that this... Uh, this, this speaking to God is a spiritual prayer. Not, and I'm, I'm repeating this because it's not a, a logical word after word um, spoke, uh, 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 understood prayer, but it is a spiritual prayer. Verse 14 says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Which means that the, 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 the given context that Paul sees tongues most comfortably uh, finding its context in is praying to God. It's not just speaking to God in some outward and uh, 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 preaching way. It, it's language to God for individual prayer that is a spiritual language given by the Spirit for an internal edification. <clears throat> and we see in verse 16 that it's usually praise. Like The content of tongues is most usually thanksgiving and praise and the like, celebration. Verse 16 says... Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, and he's using that synonymously with speak tongues, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone else give an amen unless they understand what you're saying? But he's got in mind there that tongues would most usually be a giving of praise and thanks. Again, verse 14 shows us that it's uninterpreted, and we'll explain this later because even I'm uncomfortable using this word, but it is uninterpreted, unintellectual or non-intellectual transrational speech we'll get there i'll explain it don't run out screaming because we're no longer a rational and intelligent church we're not doing that but, but i'll get there later <clears throat> and also we see in verse 18 to 19 and maybe this is going to be the most uh shocking of parts to to many people is that the gift of tongues is not ordinarily a gift to be utilized in the in the church gathering Verse 18 and 19, he's sort of saying what he would rather do, what, that he will speak in tongues and then say, but when I'm in church, I'd rather, give, I'd rather be speaking in prophecy. He says, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So let's not be afraid of this gift. Good, godly, Paul-fulfilled gift. And yet, he says, but in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And when we shouldn't <laughs> conclude from that that Paul's pretty okay with speaking 10,001 words in tongues, taking about three hours. 
That's not what Paul said. Paul's saying tongues just isn't for church. It's individual to God, spiritually given language to pray through thanksgiving for self-edification in a way that bypasses the rational cortex of your brain. Prophecy, however, is where Paul starts, I'm going to start contrasting what Paul says about prophecy because this, in almost the opposite way of every dot point we just gave, prophecy is these things. Verse 3 tells us, he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people. So tongues is speaking to God, not man. Prophecy is speaking to man, not to God. It's speaking to man from God. So that's what prophecy is. This is why Paul will prefer it. It speaks to man, not to God. It's, it is also not interpreted because it doesn't need to be. It's already understood. It's in the people's language, not just in the English, not just in the, the simple national language. It's in the dialect. It's in the, the street koine slang of the day so that people can understand it. That's what prophecy is. And we see that in verse, uh, following on in verse 3. He, uh, he says, one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So they're understanding, they're able to be edified by what is being said. And that also speaks to there in verse 3, that it is for upbuilding, encouragement and consolation. Upbuilding, encouragement and consolation there in verse uh, 3 is what he says. In contrast again with tongues, prophecy is for the building up of the church, not merely self. He said over in uh, earlier, tongues builds up self. He now says that uh, prophecy builds up the church. Prophecy, we see, is a revelation. So as opposed to being a, a spiritual prayer of thanksgiving to God, the content of revelation, uh, sorry, the content of the prophecy is a revelation from God. And what I'm doing here is pushing back on the often reformed guys who will, who will say, uh, who are cessationists, and, and, and we love them. We have mostly our books out on the shelf are going to be reformed cessationist dudes. We're reformed charismatic people mostly in this room. And even if you're none of those things, you're still welcome. Praise the Lord. We're all here, one in the spirit. And yet, uh, uh, many will take this and interpret prophecy through the whole of 1 Corinthians 14 as speaking about expository preaching. They will say that what prophecy means... Now, we're no enemy of expository preaching. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. That's not us. However, contextually, that is not what Paul is meaning. Uh, uh, what the, the, they'll take that for, uh, you know, from the ideology of the word. Prophecy means before speaking. Well, you know, when you get up and preach, you're speaking before people, right? Wrong. Not what he's talking about. He, because he says, and I'll, I'll prove it with a verse, I'm, a, I'm an expository preacher, so we'll do that. Let's prophesy down in verse... Uh, 6, we see that he says, um, uh, he makes this correlation between a revelation from God and prophecy. And he makes a correlation also between knowledge and teaching. So he says in verse 6, um, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring to you category A, revelation, or category B, knowledge. Or the two things that those, those things become when you teach them or when you speak them to people. Knowledge refers to teaching and revelation uh, 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 refers to prophecy. So prophecies in Paul's mind are revelations from God being spoken to the local church. And we also see this in verse 30. 
where he says, in speaking of the prophets, he says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So, so in Paul's mind, prophecy is not just speaking wisely, preaching the word of God. That's a separate gift setting, and we believe in it. But this is particularly God-given truth to be spoken that should not otherwise be known or applied in such a way, and it comes with power, as we will see. <clears throat> prophecy is also, if we look at verse 6 here, uh, it is not necessarily spontaneous. How many people think that if, if you're going to get a prophecy, it's going to be in church, it's going to be dr during the, you know, the third song when, when the guitar's going crazy, and if the lights could go down a little bit more, I'll get it, and if I can, it's sort of like Thor, I'll stick my hand up, I'm, I'm, it's in the middle of the lightning, so I'm going to get some kind of zap download, and it'll just come upon me. That's how many people think of tongues. It has to be worked up, it's going to come without thought or preparation or the like. Whereas Paul says here, what's it, what good is it if I'm coming to you, if I don't bring with you a revelation? Like he's previously had it, he's mulled over it, he's thought about it, he's taken it to scripture, and now he's going to bring it to the church. I've met with people who, sometimes straight after church, maybe during or beforehand or the like, who think, as soon as I get this prophecy, I'm just going to go meet the pastor or just dive straight for the mic in order to get it out, because Lord forbid that I hold prophecy within he then also says in, down in the verse 30 section where, uh, that he says uh, that people will bring a prophecy to the church. So again, it's not something that is by nature spontaneous and immediately given. Let's remove that from our thinking. Prophecy, in contrast to tongues, look at verse 19, it engages the intellect and the rationality. Verse 19 reads, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. And he's comparing here tongues with prophecy. Prophecy is, by its very nature, always upbuilding and therefore always able to be evangelistic. So look down at verse 24. It says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever comes from the outside and enters... He is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secret of his hearts are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. Prophecy always has the ability to be evangelistic, whereas we saw tongues as not being so unless it's interpreted in an Acts 2 foreign languages situation. And of course, we must say this because prophecy is so often misunderstood. Prophecy is fallible. Saying that, what we mean is that when somebody is gifted with prophecy, it is not a gift that is promised by God, that it is uncorruptible by the person who is the prophet. Just like a preacher gifted with the gift of teaching, hopefully we'll get one of those one day, uh, can take a revealed word of God and bring it to you, gifted by the Spirit. There is no promise that you can swallow up every one of those words without discernment or testing. And so it is with prophecy. A revelation given is fallible. You're not allowed to simply accept or believe or follow what one says because they've given accurate prophecies before or they just seem like a convincing guy. The Puritans would write about this. How to, how to um, uh, Richard Baxter especially, how to discern what to do when somebody brings to you a revelation they've received from God. Always the answer is take it to Scripture. 
And we see that the comparison here between the two levels of prophecy, at least at this point in history, when the Bible was still uncompleted. Today, all that we have is fallible prophecy, which needs to be tested and gauged and checked by Scripture. In the early church, though, there was the more foundational level of prophecy, which was being done by the prophets and their offsiders which would come to um, bind the conscience of Christians and which would come to be written down in our scriptures. But we see the relationship of both of those, even in this own passage, we see the same dynamic in 1 Thessalonians 5, but we're seeing it here. He says down in verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others assess what is said. Let the others assess what is said. Whereas when Paul speaks of his own prophetic and apostolic writing down in verse 38, he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And in verse 37, he says, everyone should acknowledge, if you're spiritual, that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. No one gets to say that these days. I've got a prophecy over you. It has to do with how much you should give to my ministry. And if you don't accept it, you're not of the Lord. And you, 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 you are not accepted by the Lord. Only apostles and, and prophetically speaking, authoritative prophets, biblically speaking, can say that. Today, it's fallible. It's to be tested and uh, uh, gauged and assessed. <clears throat> so these are the big, I, I hope those eight, nine points have been helpful to distinguish and contrast tongues, a great spiritually empowered gift, and prophecy, an, another spiritually empowered gift. But Paul says, like he did in verse 1, that we ought to prefer, and he goes on to say why, how he prefers to speak prophecy over tongues. Even if the ratio is five to 10,000, give me prophecy, he says. And the reason is, well, first of all, maybe before we go on, part of the question that needs to be answered is what, what happened to all of this equality that we were talking about in, in chapter 13 and all of this love, and back in chapter 12 when we're talking of the body being one of, made up of multiple different organs, all of them different. No one needs to feel uh, 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 bad or cast to the side or unimportant simply because you're a pinky toenail. Bodies need pinky toenails. And the other guy is a right arm and he's doing all the heavy lifting and all the right, right. You don't need to feel bad if that's the contrast. Why then is Paul, in light of being speaking of so much equality, now going to say that one ought to be preferred and the other is to be not preferred in comparison? And it's because, as we, we touched on a couple of weeks ago, gifts are not assessed or gauged in importance based on how awesome, fun, showy, sexy, valuable they look. Like we're not doing, it's not like we're at, a, we're at a car show and we're picking out the showy ones or we're at a rock show and we're picking out the best looking, most impressive ones. That's not how we gauge importance. In the body, though, it is right and proper to gauge importance and pref- prefer certain body parts if the difference is between the well-working ones and the malfunctioning ones. So the the hierarchy exists not between tongues and prophecy, not between preaching and dreams and visions or healing and faith. We're not setting up gifts against each other. We're setting up against each other helpfulness 
and unhelpfulness, or that which builds up and that which doesn't care whether it builds up. That's the comparison that Paul is making here, and it's on that basis that he will say, even in verse 5, I want you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And then he says this very unchristian thing, the one who prophesies is better, greater than the one who speaks in tongues. The comparison is not the gift, the comparison is the usefulness to the body. So somebody should feel lesser, somebody should feel inferior. Somebody should feel like you're, you're kind of getting pushed to the side, not because of your gift, but if you're not using your gift in a way that builds up the body. That, that, that needs to be said. Paul, Paul didn't uh, care about status. He did care about productivity and the Great Commission. So get to the side, shush, sit down, go to the back, if your gifting is being used in a way that builds only you up to the detriment of others, or, as we're going to see later, is being done in a way that gets in the way of souls being saved and the church multiplying. Paul cares about productivity. That's why he prefers prophecy and commands prophecy in the local assembly, but not tongues. Again, he has, we're coming back to this word, edification. Edification. Every body part, whether it's a tiny one or a major one, all of the, the reason they're useful is because they're doing their part in the building up of the health of the body. And therefore, no matter how big a body part or impressive or important it seems, it is to be removed if it turns malignant, if it turns against itself and starts uh, sending other body parts necrotic, it needs to be sliced out. So Paul will say, edification is the word he uses seven times over in this section. This has been his approach in every other issue the church has faced, has been edification. There's divisions in the church back in chapter 1. How can we approach this in a way that will preserve the unity and the upbuilding of the church? There's sexual sin issues. How can we deal with this in a way that will build up the church? And in that instance, it was chop him out. In 2 Corinthians, he then writes again and says, accept him back in. He's repentant. Build up the church. When it's marriage issues, he's saying, Let's address the issues of marriage in a way that will build up the church. In fact, he even says, decide whether or not you're going to get married on the basis of whether or not it will build up the church in the Great Commission. He's going to say on the matters of conscience and eating meat sacrificed to idols, the important thing is that which builds up the church over and over again. How much they give to the church, how they respect their, their apostle and all of these things, his Continual hope has been to teach them in a way that will build the church up. And so back again to verse 3 and 4, we're going to see that this is why Paul prefers prophecy. Because it edifies, it encourages, and it consoles. What we need to see first here is, is when prophecy is given, it's not the bringing of a new revelation of doctrinal teaching that the church is now to receive. So many prophets today will try and speak of maybe the date that Jesus is coming back or the date that Antichrist named this or that is going to invade you know, Canaan and do something in Palestine or, or this is the, what the church needs to believe now. We have new scripture given, uh, uh, you know, planted in, your, in the back of your Bible or this is how much everybody is to give. I remember hearing one guy say that because there was a, uh, a nice little chapter in, uh, uh, numbered in Isaiah that was chapter 54, verse 18. He said, therefore, everybody needs to give. God's told me this, $54.18. That's, that's your ongoing tithe at least every week. 
Ridiculous. Ridiculous. The, 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 prophet, the prophetic gifting is not for new revelation. It is for ongoing application and God speaking to the situation you find yourself in, in a way that builds you up and the whole body of the church and that encourages you, comes alongside you, is the wind in your sails so often. If, if you've received maybe a prophetic word from somebody, it was true or it was definitely from the Lord, it checked out, it gauged from Scripture, it was right on. How, how, how that boosted your confidence that the Lord is here in this situation and is blessing and speaking and working. And it consoles, it heals people up, it helps them, it spurs them on. And it restores them where there has been hurt or lack of trust or the like. It's not, therefore, this gift that is also um, uh, people try and twist it as, as some kind of condemning gift that you walk around and revealing to people you're actually not a Christian, saw what you did, you're guilty, you're out of here, you're condemned. It's not one that is primarily condemnatory. But it's primarily in the covenant of grace, this new age, it is primarily that for building up and speaking of grace into people's lives, even though sometimes it does point out sin and unrepentance. It is also intelligibility. Now, this is where we get to go, go down to verse <coughs> 7. We're going to see this discussion of um, uh, instruments and notes and the bugle giving an indistinct sound. And again, the third analogy of the different languages of the world. Paul uses these three imageries. Instruments that are out of tune and not able to hit notes. A bugle when there's war coming and enemies coming over the horizon. They go to blow it to warn the troops and it's a flat thump. And, and no one's getting out of bed at 4 a.m. in the morning to go and get their armor on, grab a blade and get to battle because they hear a thump. You ever been at a... At Anzac, I've been to like three where this has happened. It's so depressing when it happens. You're there at the break of dawn, ever a very surreal, somber situation, and they've got like a boy cadet or something to come and do it, do the bugle sound, and the first noise is just a <clears throat> and he start, he's coughed into the end of it or something, and it's just completely ruined the entire environment and atmosphere of the morning. It's terrible. As an Australian, it's blasphemy, but it happens. And, and Paul's saying, you know, that's, that's what it's like. You've got, you got war coming. You've got to get into that bugle, blast it loud, but if you don't, then it has, does not have its intended effect. And the third imagery he gives is human languages. There's lots of languages in the world, he says. But all of them have as their strength the fact that people can understand each other. <laughs> right? And the weakness is that when you come together and you don't speak the same language, you are, your, language, your, your translation might say foreigner or an outsider. The language is barbarian. An uncultured person from the other side of the world that I, I'm an outsider from them. Even though I'm sitting next to them, I'm, we're, we're just worlds apart if we can't communicate. What he's saying with these analogies is that is a world that has been designed by God and interwoven with his laws, it is impossible to communicate to other created beings or to other minds. It is impossible to communicate without the use of intelligibility, which means understandableness, logic, and rational understanding. Whenever you want to communicate to another human being or another being that has intelligence, you have to use words. This is how God himself has communicated himself, through the word, the logos of the Son and the Scripture. 
It's just a part of nature. You can't communicate ideas without going through the rational intellectual cortex of your mind, turning it into words which form sentences and communicate. Unless the person that you're talking to is God through the gift of tongues. That is what is so special and unique about the gift of tongues. You'll communicate nothing to any other mind in all of your life without the use of understandable words, unless you're speaking to God, and even then, only through the gift of tongues. Because, you know, even when we pray and we talk to the Lord, even that, by God's ordainment, is through words and the rational intelligibility of our minds. But tongues is that one element where it bypasses that, which means, by nature, as Paul is saying, it becomes entirely uh, in, in, uh, uh, out of place as soon as there are other people around. Because you're communicating to the Lord in this unique, spiritually empowered way, and no one else will be able to hear and amen or understand. It is a way that, like I said before, it, it, makes, it should make us at least just a little bit jittery that Paul says here, I'm praying but not with my mind, and I'm speaking but not with my mind. I'm able to commune with the Lord, but not with my mind. Like, we're mind people. We like brain and theology and doctrine. That's us. We like it. We've got Bibles bigger than our boots. That's what, we, that's what we're about. And then he says there's a possibility to grow in your faith without your mind. You get a little shaky. And I think we should because it's so unique. It's so miraculous. And it should not be taking place in an outward way among the people. It will be too distracting, far too distracting. In the, in the body of the church, which is... In this context, we need to uh, focus on the upbuilding through words that are understood and preached. So that's why he prefers prophecy. However, there is a, a notion here down in verse 20. Can you go to verse 20 with me? <clears throat> in 20 through 23, we see something that is quite fearful if we are unintentional or careless about our use of of the gift of tongues in the church. Verse 20 says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He's using the idea of, of infanthood and childhood to, to, to denote, uh, well, he says, you know, innocence. Be, be children as far as evil goes. That's great. Be innocent like a baby's innocent. However, in the other sense, many Christians who even see themselves as highly gifted may be very, very immature. This is a great insult to the Corinthians who thought that because they excelled in tongues, they were therefore by definition mature. Paul wants them to know the gauge on your Christian maturity is your ability to shape your life towards the Great Commission in and through the local church. That's the gauge on maturity. Not how long you've been saved, not how much you've got memorized, not how many guys with French names you can pronounce, not how many different books that you've read from dead people that are on your shelf and you probably didn't actually read them. We all know. It's not about that. It is the, the greatest and most accurate gauge of Christian maturity is how much you are able to take your life and shape it so that it can be productive in the Great Commission in the context of a local church. And so he's saying, don't be children, you tongue speakers, you miracle lovers, you church goers. You don't care about the Great Commission and the upbuilding of the church. You're children. Don't be children, but be mature in your thinking. So then he says this. He, he quotes Bible because he's a good preacher. He says, in the law it is written, and he's now preaching from Isaiah 28, and he paraphrases it. 
He says, by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for or against unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And what he's getting at here is that there is a condemning nature to the function of tongues. As I-28 is, is, in its context, a prophecy against rebellious Jerusalem and the people of the official standing of the day who used to laugh at Isaiah, even in one section of his prophecy, it says that they mocked him for being childlike, using street language that just old anybody can understand. They were these guys who, who had far too uh, inflated senses of their own ego, who wanted impressive speech and eloquent sermons, but who refused to hear the call to repentance for their many social and religious sins. And so God said through Isaiah, tell these people if they refuse to hear the simply stated good news of repentance and salvation in their own language, then what I'm going to do is take away their language. And I'm instead going to send them someone speaking another language, the words of God, and even if they wanted to, they can't understand it. And trust me, God says to Isaiah, when they hear it, they will wish they could hear it in a language they could understand, turn and repent. The context was the attack of the Assyrians, that God said, when you are in Jerusalem and you can hear people speaking Assyrian, it's a bad sign. Jerusalem is a closed city with a very big wall. When there's an enemy nation speaking and yelling its commands in your city, you've lost. Your children are now slaves. Your wives have new husbands and you are on death row. The hearing of this other language that they could not understand was a judgment. And what Paul therefore says in the very next verse, he says, now in our context, we may not be in the midst of a generation that is in the same sense under judgment. We may not know that every person who comes in is somebody that God wants to withhold the good news from. Goodness, we should assume, we should be praying that, like Paul did, I will preach to all that some may be saved. I preach to all, some receive it with death in their eyes, others receive it with life in their souls. I don't choose who are elect. I don't decide by our social atmosphere and cultural sway that probably God wants most of these sinners to go to hell. Therefore, I'm not going to be zealously evangelistic. We don't do that. Paul says, therefore, he says... Verse 22, thus, sorry, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, right, best case scenario, maybe somebody's made the argument, what if we're all speaking in tongues? So it doesn't matter that I'm edifying, but he's not getting edified because he's got his own tongues. So let's say we're all doing it. No problem with that. Paul says, even if best case scenario, you are all speaking in tongues, if an outsider or an unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? This is his concern. Not that God is judging Corinth or any other nation like he judged that, uh, the, 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 the Israelites necessarily. The issue is, is that in the Jews' day, the, the tongues were a condemnation. The problem is that in our day, we may be leading people to condemnation by the practice of public tongues. 
because they hear a miracle, think, wow, this is impressive, it's fiery, it's flashy, something's happening, but they're cooked. Or, as the, the, the people say in Acts chapter 2, they go, wow, drunk, 9 a.m., they've got some Jewish vodka going up in the upper room, we do not want anything to do with that. And, and so this is the effect that people have. While they profess this godliness and maturity and how much the Spirit is among them in, in, in bringing them all to this communal speaking in tongues, Paul is saying that is so immature, childish, and unloving. Because the loving Christian is not a seeker-sensitive who always wants to change how we speak and what we preach so that the world accepts us and lots of people come in. It's not that. But he's evangelistic. He cares about the world. And he doesn't want a possibility that someone would come in being led by the Spirit to hear the gospel preached, coming to, to find Jesus Christ as their forgiveness of sins, coming to the end of themselves and their own religion or their own self-righteousness or their own sinful lifestyle, and to come in and as the Word of God is open, somebody stands up and confuses them with tongues so that they leave and miss the gospel. This is so important to Paul because he wants to be, as love does, building up the church in the Great Commission. Souls matter. This is what Jesus is doing. This is how to be most Christ-like, is to think how to use your gifts for the building of the church and the winning of souls. Christ is the one who came to the church, sorry, came to the world in order to establish the church. He's the first builder of the church. It's after his example that we follow. It was him who, who lived and taught for the building of the church. It was him who died to take the sins of the church and all who will believe. It was him who rose so that he could be the cornerstone and the foundation for the church. It was him who went up into heaven and, and commissioned the apostles and the church with the, with the Holy Spirit so that they can be the, the bricks in the, the, the building of the church. And as Jesus said while he was on earth, you break this temple, his own body, down, three days later I'll rise it back up. The new temple of the new covenant is Jesus' body, which is the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. Friends, don't find yourself on the side of the gates of hell because of how much we love using our particular gifts. Jesus is building his church. We ought to be also. And as we sort of close out here, I want to ask the question, well, how do we, how do we pursue prophecy? If it's not standing up to try and get a lightning bolt mid-service, if it's not downloading some, uh, some, some prophetic how-to uh, lectures from <clears throat> Mr. Johnson online, what do I do? How do I find out how to prophesy? And my, my imploration is this. My encouragement is this, as I've said over and over again in this series. Pursue life in the local church for the winning of souls in the Great Commission. And if you do this, if you excel in love, if you pursue the upbuilding of the church, then you are doing the very thing the gifts are given for. And God can so perfectly, so, so, so in a way that is so well suited, give to you the gifts that you are already agreeing with. Get active in the Great Commission with, though, not some little background, shadowy expectation God might give some people prophecy. But Paul says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts 
so, so that we are pursuing love in winning souls in the local church, and we are expecting and desiring that God would further aid our mission with the spiritual gifts. And, and, and maybe you're here tonight and you say, but I'm, n- I'm not a continuationist. I'm not a charismatic. I'm a really comfortable, sound cessationist. And, and that's, that's a whole bunch of us. We're all welcome here. But even them, even you, God can use in even the gift of prophecy. My favorite uh, cessationist in history is Charles Spurgeon. And he prophesied. I use him as an example because he is somebody whose ministry, life, and soul was so set on winning souls that even his cessationist theology was not a strong enough barrier for God to gift prophecy through. He says this. He's speaking about his own preaching experience. It says, one time while preaching... On an occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd. He would have 5,000 people gathering on an easy Sunday. He pointed to them and said, there is a man here who is a shoemaker. He's not even talking to the guy. He's talking to everybody else. This bloke down here, black jacket, he's a shoemaker, ladies and gentlemen. And he says, he keeps his shop open on Sundays, which is quite a sin in 18th century Uh, Britain, bring the day back. He says, it was open last Sabbath morning and he took ninepence and there was fourpence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for fivepence. No, fourpence, because that was a profit, right? He said that to this crowd of thousands. And then does he stop and get him up? Was I right? What was the accuracy on that? Can you come and give a quick testimony to everybody we're recording? We'll put it on YouTube so that everybody knows I'm a really good prophet. (gasps) He doesn't care. He stops there. He keeps on preaching. He forgets that guy. And it was later on that a city missionary going into this man's house met him and saw him reading a Spurgeon sermon out of the paper. He says, you know Spurgeon? (laughs) Do I know Spurgeon? I very surely do, you see. I went to hear him and under his preaching by God's grace, I have become a new creature in Christ. Shall I tell you how it happened? I was sitting there in the music hall and took my seat in the middle of the place and Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in the midst of his sermon, he pointed to me and told everybody in the congregation, he's a little bit bitter about that, told everybody in the congregation that I was a shoemaker, that I kept my shop open on Sundays. That's not all that impressive. You see, he went on to tell me the exact profit that I made. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the very next Sunday and my friend, here I am, my soul is saved by the Lord. That is what prophecy is for. Spurgeon doesn't go chasing that answer. He moves on preaching and hears of it later. Spurgeon goes on to say there was another uh, instance where he, uh, he pointed to a young girl and said, you've got a, a mistress that you serve, you know, you're, 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 you're the lady who owns the house, you're a servant in her house and you stole some gloves, they're in your left pocket, goes on preaching. And this lady also came to faith weeks later. Spurgeon said, I could count as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of that person or any idea what I might say and whether it was right, except I believed that I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description at times. The people have gone away and said to their friends, come and see a man that told me everything that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described these things so exactly. This is what Paul says is the thrust of prophecy. If we desire the preaching of the gospel, 
the building up of the local church, the, 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 the advancing of the Great Commission to the ends of the world. And we pray with desperation that God would give us any gift as long as we can be more effective in winning souls and building the church, then he will not hold back. Jesus said while he was on earth, he, he was speaking of the parable of prayer and about how you knock and you knock and you knock and you knock on some dude's door, uh, even though he doesn't want to listen, he'll end up answering. How much more will God the Father give to his children the promised Holy Spirit when they ask. That must be our confidence. God will not give in a way that will turn to chaos. The word will be our guide, but the gospel is our commission, and it is all to the glory of our great God and King, Jesus Christ. Can you stand with me as I now pray over us, um, and we'll, we'll close out in a final song afterwards, of course. Father God, we... We come to you as your humble servants and your thankful recipients of grace. None of us have what we ought to have had to please you and satisfy you and meet your standards. But in Jesus Christ, all of our needs have been met according to your law. Your wrath has been borne by a substitute. We have gone free. We have repented of our sins and turned to you in faith. We trust you for our soul's salvation. We thank you, God, that you now utilize us on your mission. And I pray, Lord, over those who who in reading of this text from Paul would have a, a cutting conviction that their lives and their gifts, maybe even natural giftings, have been used in ways that have just not bothered to benefit the local church, that have been used in ways that have just not bothered to, to, to angle it towards the winning of souls. But I pray, Lord, that you would make us those who are like Paul. He tells us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. There was nothing that Jesus owned, nothing, no, no ability that Jesus had, nothing that Jesus did that was not geared and, and uh, constrained towards the upbuilding of the church, the glorifying of God in the winning of transgressors. Father God, we want to be a church that is culturally and practically and missionally engaged and focused on winning souls. Let us be distracted by nothing else because there are so many other things that distract us. Many of them good, but none of them primary. Primarily, we seek the glorification of Jesus in seeking souls to save, to build up the church. Use every one of us in that endeavor. And Lord, if there is any among us tonight who still hold on to their sins, who still sleep at night with a guilty conscience, who still fear death and walk in pride and away from you, Lord, I pray that you would give to them salvation tonight, would you give to them faith to believe, a soul that receives all the goodness of Jesus Christ in the gospel? And would you let them turn from their sin and be saved, forgiven, made entirely new creatures, filled with your spirit? And everybody said, Amen.